Uh, today's uh, passage is in Mark 15, verses 42 uh, through Mark 16, verses, verse 8. All right. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Hosea's saw where he, he was laid. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, Who will roll away this stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You may be seated. Thank you, Clint and Rachel, and of course, thank you, Seth, very much for your service to us. We're very grateful. And let me also welcome you to worship this morning at Christ Fellowship. So glad all of you are here. Will you pray with me? Father, we need and we want your help because we need and our want and want our hearts to be prepared this morning to continue to worship you, Lord, as we hear from your precious word. Father, I pray that you would be working in all of us right now to please help us to, to put away distractions of our minds and of our hearts and to be solely focused on you right now, Lord. I pray that you would please help us to be all here so that we can all hear from your word. Lord, you have a word for each of us, and this word is living and powerful, and I pray that it would do its work in all of our hearts this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would do his work individually in each one of our hearts, for we're all in different places, and we trust that he'll do his work that only he can do. We pray this in Jesus' perfect name, amen. Well, good morning. The Lord is risen. There we go. He has risen indeed. And I've titled the sermon this morning simply, He Has Risen. Because this is the day that we celebrate Him rising again from the dead. Did you know that this is actually why the church started meeting on Sundays? It was because of this day to commemorate the fact that our Lord rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So the reason that you're here on Sunday and not Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday is because 
Jesus rose from the dead on the first day of the week, and so the church has met on this day. This day has now been called the Lord's Day by John, the apostle, and we've called it that ever since. We've met on this day ever since. So like Butch said, we really always celebrate the resurrection, and we show that by continuing to come every Sunday and meet together. But this day especially is a happy day. I just woke up happy. I just woke up happy. As we conclude chapter 15, what we find is that the body of Jesus Christ is now hanging lifeless on the cross. How did he get there? Well, the the answer to that question really (laughs) isn't so simple, is it? How did Jesus, the Son of God, find himself crucified on the cross? Well, first of all, he became a man. He, the infinite Son of God, eternal, purposefully chose to become man. He purposefully chose to put on flesh, to become incarnate. He was born of the Virgin Mary, grew up in an obscure town called Nazareth, would have learned carpentry more than likely from his father Joseph, who I should say his earthly father Joseph, who was also a carpenter. Then at the age of 30, Jesus begins his earthly ministry. And how does he start that earthly ministry? Well, by being baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River. And the Holy Spirit descends upon him in the form of a dove. And the Holy Spirit, for his first act, moves Jesus to go out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days, fasting the entire time, tempted by Satan. And we know Jesus comes out of that, of course, victorious. He emerges successful, not having succumbed to any of the temptations of the wicked one, not having committed any sin or breaking a single law of God. He then chooses 12 followers who became his disciples. He takes them and teaches them, and they go about doing good. Jesus does miracles, and he teaches the truth of God, proclaiming the kingdom of God, telling all men everywhere that they should repent and turn away from their sins and believe the good news. Jesus, in his teaching, he shows people the heart of God's law because many people were missing it, thinking it was externals only that mattered. And he showed them the very heart of God And of course, the shining of the light of truth naturally exposes darkness. Anytime you shine light, it exposes the darkness and the sinfulness and the errors of men that they were committing, and it caused some to be softened and to see their sin for what it really was and to repent and to believe God and to follow Jesus. However, it caused others to be further hardened and double down on their sinful behavior and begin to oppose Jesus. Surprisingly enough, this happened most often among those who called themselves holy and called themselves priests and called themselves teachers of the law of God, the religious elite of that day. They had Jesus arrested. They lied about Jesus at his trial. They convinced the crowd to 
cry out, crucify him. They had a robber exchanged for Jesus instead, had the robber let go, and those wicked men did exactly what they wanted to do. But God's will unfolded exactly the way he wanted it to. They did not thwart any of God's plans. His plans were perfectly fulfilled. You see, Jesus went to the cross willingly because it was the Father's will that his sinless son take the wrath that sinful men deserve. It was God's will that Jesus Christ should be the savior of men by drinking to the very last drop the wrath of God. And what men couldn't see behind the heavenly veil that day is that Jesus was taking upon himself the full weight, the full displeasure, the full hatred against sin. The blows, the whips, the mocking, the spit, the thorns, the nails, the blood, the sweat was all necessary that day for God's will to be perfectly fulfilled. And Jesus died. So the answer to the question of how did Jesus get upon the cross is not, is not so simple, is it? All of that is why Jesus was on the cross that day. That's why we find the lifeless body of Jesus on the cross in our text in chapter 15. Thankfully, not all the religious elite were the same. Not all the religious holy priests, holy teachers, who weren't actually very holy, not all of them were wicked. Not all of them had hard hearts. Some of them believed, one of whom was Joseph from our text. Our text actually says that he was looking for the kingdom of God. And apparently Joseph was a respected and wealthy man, respected because he's able to inquire and receive the body of Christ. But notice it says that he took courage to do that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. It says he took courage and did it. I say he's wealthy because he wraps Jesus' body in what type of cloth? A linen cloth? Very expensive. And it says he lays him in a tomb. We find out from another gospel, it says that this is his own tomb that he had cut out. He would have paid for that. It was also very expensive. But I admire Joseph. I admire him for what he did. And he wasn't working alone. Do you know, according to John 19.39, John 19.39 tells us that Nicodemus was also there, helping him, helping him apply the spices to Jesus' body and helping him wrap Jesus' body in linen and helping him put Jesus' body in the tomb. This is the Nicodemus that the famous words were said to by Jesus at night on a rooftop. You must be born again. That Nicodemus. It's been called the Nick at night. These men placed Jesus' body in the tomb, and I admire them. Two respected men among the respected religious leaders of that day risked much in order to do this. They were a part of a group where very few people believed. And it was very frowned upon if you did believe in this radical 
rabbi from backwoods, Galilee. It was very frowned upon. That's why I say that we need to notice in the text when it says that Joseph took courage and asked for the body of Jesus. It took courage because there was a lot at stake. They were a part of a group where very few people believe. Yet, they made sacrifices. I say they, I'm talking about Joseph and Nicodemus. They made sacrifices monetarily and reputationally. Both of them did. And they did it to honor God. Some of you find yourself in a similar situation, don't you? Do you exist in a group where very few people believe? I know that you youth in the room do. There are very few godly youth in our day. You exist in a group of people where you will definitely be made fun of for standing up for what's right, don't you, young people? Very few young people care about the things of God and have an eternal perspective, very, very little wisdom among the youth in our day. And I was just like you once. Not like you godly ones, like you ungodly ones. <laughs> or I should say like the ungodly ones. I'm not trying to point out any ungodly youth in the room. I'm just saying. I was once a very ungodly youth. And there were very few believers in my school. I can point to maybe three or four in my entire high school growing up that I can recall and I could say, I believe he was godly and I believe she was godly. Maybe three or four out of hundreds. And so youth, put away your desire to fit in and use your resources to honor Christ just like Joseph and Nicodemus had to. What about you men in the room? Men who work day-to-day jobs out there in the world. I was among that number for many years as well, working a, just a, a day-to-day job out there in the world, and I've worked lots of different ones. And I know, I know that there are few godly men out there in the average workplaces. I remember being in the minority. I remember being talked about behind my back, and I remember being made fun of. But you know what I also remember? when things went south in some of those men's lives really badly, guess who they came to for help and for prayer? The one that they were formerly making fun of, who they knew was godly, who they knew didn't compromise for more money. They ended up coming to me and saying, hey, you know what, I'm in a really bad place and I need help. So men... Let me also encourage you, if you are in a place where there are very few godly people, just like Joseph and Nicodemus, put away your desire to fit in and use your resources to honor God. Ladies who exist in a world where the other ladies just move from fad to fad, where others focus so much time and energy on outward appearance, and you're the only modest one in the group, where words are used so often by the other ladies around you to tear down other ladies, 
and where it's just so commonplace to spend so much time and attention and money only on your outward appearance, yet you are focused on being Godward inwardly and focused on being a God-fearing woman, let me also encourage you, put away your desire to fit in and use your resources to honor Christ. Joseph and Nicodemus were wonderful examples to us and how they honored Christ and all that he stood for, truth, life, trust, faith, and most importantly, obedience to God's word. Jesus showed us that with his life more than anything else. Obedience to the word of God no matter what, right? Then in chapter 16, the scene changes, doesn't it? The men were responsible for delivering Jesus' body into the grave in chapter 15. Now in chapter 16, the women arrive on Sunday morning to reapply spices to the body of Jesus. Let's talk about what they find. And in doing so, we'll also highlight the miracle of what they don't find. What do I mean is, what I mean is this, they went to find the body of Jesus. What they did not find was the body of Jesus. Why? Because he had risen from the dead. I want to move our attention to the angel in our text. Not necessarily to the angel just because he was an angel, but to what he says. In fact, we actually learn from Luke and John's gospel that there were two of them. Luke and John's gospel tells us that there were two of them. The women needed the stone rolled away, but they find that it had already been done. We learn from Matthew's gospel that the angel does this, and the Roman soldiers who were guarding the tomb became like dead men. What's that mean? They passed out. Now remember who these men were. Seasoned, trained soldiers. We've got some in our midst even. You men don't shake easily. However, these Romans who were tough, seasoned, brave, fell down like dead men. And we find that when the women get to the tomb, the Romans aren't there anymore. You know why they're not there? Because they ran away. They abandoned their post. Then we, of course, learn later. You know, I told you that the wicked, holy men doubled down on their sin. We learned that they pay the Romans to not talk about what they saw. The links wicked men will go to. This angel, the reason why he scared these soldiers so badly is we learn from Matthew that his appearance was like lightning. <laughs> Bright, shining, terrifying. Yes, lightning is, is beautiful from a distance. But if you've ever seen it close up, you're not thinking, boy, that's beautiful. You're thinking, this might kill me. I should leave. And that's what the soldiers did this being was like nothing they'd ever seen before, even though they were trained 
and accomplished men, and they took off. But I really want to focus not so much on the angel's appearance or even so much what he did in rolling the stone away. I want to focus on the angel's words, words that he spoke to the ladies. And the reason why I want to do this is because of this. What the angel does and what the angel says would be only those things he was commanded to do and say by the Father. So this angel saying things, but he would only be saying exactly what the Father told him to say. The Greek word for angel is angelos, which means messenger. And he would be a lousy messenger if he did not give the message that he was commanded to give, wouldn't he? Like if you told someone, I need you to say such and such to this person. Say A, and then say B, and then say C, and say it exactly like that. And then that person went and just sort of improvised, got A and C mixed up, and B wasn't even in there. You'd say, did you tell them what I told you to say? And well, well, I mean, no. Angels don't do that. Not these angels. There were some angels that chose to rebel against the Lord, and they became demons. Satan and a third of the angels were taken down. Why? Because of pride and because of sin, disobedience. These angels are not like that. They are perfectly obedient, and they love their father, and they know that his words are pure, so pure and living. Why would I alter them at all? I would be doing a disservice to these men, I mean these women rather, and who they're going to tell if I altered them in any way. This Angelos was a perfect example of what a messenger should be. So in focusing on his words, we're getting God's words. He's going to say only what he was told to say. So I've made a composite as you know, we, we don't just have one gospel, we have, we have four, but I want to include text from all three of the gospels that I've, I've, I've lumped together using Mark as our foundation. What you'll see on the image behind me is all the words in black are going to be from Mark's gospel, that, what we've already read. The supplied portions are going to be in different colors. Matthew's, what he supplies to us is going to be in green, and what Luke supplies to us is going to be in blue. And so I've just made a composite. I've put them all together to get one fluid example of, of what was said that, that morning to these ladies. And so let's look then at verse um, 5, entering the tomb. They saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe. His appearance was like lightning. We learned that from Matthew. They were alarmed. And he says to them, do not be alarmed. He starts out, don't be alarmed, don't fear. This seems like something's wrong, ladies, but it's not. Don't be alarmed. My, my presence here is normal, ladies, for occurrences like this, for events like this, for monumental beginnings like this. For example, in Job 38, the angels observed God's creative work and shouted for joy, we're told, in Job 38. Also, after sin entered the world, 
which that wasn't a, a good, happy event, I understand. But an angel stood guard at the tree of life, lest Adam and Eve partake of the tree of life and remain in their sinful state. An angel guarded what was holy and good from being corrupted. Galatians 3.19 tells us that angels were involved in the giving of the law. We don't know how exactly, but we are given that commentary of when the law was given to Moses and the children of Israel, angels were involved in that giving of the law, which began really um, the nation of Israel under a law. Angels We Have Heard on High was a hymn written to remind us of when the angels announced the birth of Jesus Christ. It's very common for angels to be present at the beginning of something, even after the beginning of the church. In the book of Acts, we see angels are involved in the workings of the new disciples. And so just like it's very normal for us here on earth to herald the, let's say, coronation of a a king or a queen or to herald the victory of a battle or to even herald the birth of a child that we wouldn't use the word herald anymore. But so we see these messengers present at the tomb of the risen Savior, the beginning of something very Special, And so he says, don't be alarmed. It's very normal for me to be here also. Don't be alarmed because I know. He says, next, you seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Essentially, he's saying, I know who you're looking for. And I know why you're looking for him and, and why you think he would still be here. Because you ladies were the ones that saw him crucified. As you recall from last week's sermon The last two verses of that talk about how there were all these ladies there present with Jesus at the cross when he died. Remember, the disciples abandoned him. There was one, however, at the foot of the cross. We know that that was John. But all these ladies were there, all these female followers of Jesus Christ who were so devoted and so faithful. This angel says, you're seeking Jesus who was crucified. You even saw it happen. But you see, ladies... Where I come from, death doesn't even exist. This angel was from heaven where there's no death, no pain, no suffering, no tears even. And for him, death is this this foreign concept, right? Knows nothing of it in the world where he's from. You're seeking Jesus who was crucified You know what? Let me tell you the truth about him. He's risen. He's not here. He's not dead. He's alive. And then he gives them two forms of evidence. The first one is visible evidence. Look what he says. He's not here. He's risen. And then he says, see the place where they've laid him. Number one form of evidence why what I'm saying is true to you ladies, look, he's not here. Butch and Pam, you've been to the Holy Land. You also saw the empty tomb, didn't you? 
I think there's actually two sites that they think might be the one, but, but both were empty, yes? <laughs> He's not here. He's risen. See the place where they've laid him. He says, look with your eyes. Look at reality around you. Doesn't even reality around you tell you that he's risen? And you know what? The Lord does this with us as well. He uses reality around us to teach us some truths. His existence, for example. Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of his hands. You can just look around at reality and at least know that there is a God I used to work with a gentleman who told me he was looking up at the sky one day and he said, I just, I was just looking up at the sky and I just said, there's got to be a God. And I said, you're right. You're exactly right. I forget exactly what we said after that, but evidence, visible evidence, God uses that. And that's what the angel started. See, ladies, the place where they've laid him. This is the first reason why you can know he's risen. Use your eyes. Interpret truth from your eyes also. Also this, and this is where we go on to Luke's gospel. Luke provides this for us, and I'm so glad that he did. The angel also said, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. So first, he gave them visible evidence. Secondly, he gives them verbal evidence. He reminds them of Jesus' words. Do you see that? Remember how he told you, is what he says. Remember Jesus' words, ladies, and all of this will make sense. You're looking at this right now, and you're saying, this doesn't make sense. Never seen two shining men before, shining like lightning. Never seen that. Never come to a tomb with spices. Probably wasn't the first time they did this for someone in their lifetime. Never come to a tomb with spices and seen looking at the linen that was wrapped around his body, now collapsed and emptied, looking at the linen that was around his head, folded up nicely there. Never seen that. I cannot make sense of this. And the angel says, if you remember Jesus' words, you can. Remembering Jesus' words makes sense of life. Why do you think the angel told them to remember? Well, the answer is very simple. Because they had forgotten, right? Remember how your, past, your pastor has told you faithfully, reminded you again and again that you are leaky buckets. You are constantly leaking truth. This is why you always have to be refilling it. Always. You are constantly Leaking it. You're constantly leaking out truth. And he says, remember how he told you. Remember Jesus' words. I want to stay here just for a bit longer. 
They were looking at a situation that made no sense. They were looking at a situation that they actually had no category for in their brain. Sure, yes, they had read in the scriptures that God had raised people from the dead. Sure, they believed that. But they weren't expecting it. They weren't expecting it. Any of you read things about God in his word, him doing things, but you don't expect it in your life? Any of you in here like that? Probably, right? Remember what Jesus said. Remember his words. It makes sense of everything. Because this doesn't make sense. I mean, think about it. We wouldn't have done it this way. You and I would not have saved the world this way. We wouldn't have. You want to know how you and I would have saved the world? Round up all the bad guys, okay? All the people that hate us, all the people that don't side with us. Okay, now nuke them. The end. No more people who disagree with us. No more people we don't like anymore. And then you know what happens? You know what happens after that? Uh-oh. Among those whom we still like, uh-oh, now, now there's a faction a few years later. Uh-oh, now, now these people don't agree with us anymore. Okay, now who's got the bigger stick? Okay, you guys go kill those guys. And we'll just keep, we'll just keep killing people who disagree with us. And how's that worked out for us throughout human history? Aren't we doing very good as humans? Aren't we just, aren't we just seeing just life and, and wonderfulness just all over the world, aren't we? Oh, we're so good at doing this life thing, aren't we? That's why we're more medicated than we've ever been. That's why we're more depressed than we've ever been because we're just so good at this life thing, aren't we? Now, remember what he told you. Remember how he told you. While he was still in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day. Rise! So that was their verbal evidence. Remember Jesus' words. And none of this makes sense. None of this makes sense the way God did it without divine revelation. Yes, he's given you general revelation. Look around, see the truth. But how you're saved from your sin is through divine revelation, special revelation that he's given us through the word of God that we believe by faith. And that's how we're saved from our sin. By learning, ah, oh, this, this God who created everything, he has a son. And this son was perfect. And he kept the law perfectly, the law that I've broken. And he died in my place so that I don't have to be punished for breaking that law. And he rose again from the dead. And he ever intercedes for me that I can be saved and be with him in heaven one day. Yes, it's all true. You would not know that otherwise unless he revealed it to you. You wouldn't. God revealed himself to you in the form of his son. The angel's not done. He says in verse seven, but go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. The angel then says, go, share this good news. Go tell other people about it. Especially Peter. Have you ever wondered why the emphasis on Peter? Go tell his disciples and Peter. It almost makes it sound like Peter's not one of the disciples, but we know that he is. Go tell his followers, and especially tell Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Why the emphasis on Peter? I think because of Peter's great failure. Recall 
in your mind the last interaction that Peter and Jesus had. Remember what it was? They locked eyes, and there wasn't a smile like, I'm praying for you, I love you so much. If I could rescue you, Jesus, I would. It wasn't that, was it? They locked eyes after Peter denied Jesus the third time. The rooster crows. They lock eyes. Peter's heart breaks because he promised Jesus, though they all abandon you, I will not. I'm ready to go to prison with you and to die with you. I'm your man. I'll never do that. And the last encounter he has with Jesus, he looks in his face and the disappointment and the shame and the guilt hit him. And it says he goes away and wept bitterly. That's the last encounter he had with Jesus. The Lord was concerned about Peter's restoration. Isn't that good news? Just like if you're a Christian here this morning who's had a recent failure and it's tearing you apart. Let me tell you this. If your recent failure is tearing you apart with guilt and shame, that's good news. The fact that you hate your sin is a good sign that you love your God. Because if you did not love your God, you wouldn't hate your sin. The Lord is concerned about your restoration as well, Christian, this morning. He is speaking to you now through this word. Do you know that? The Lord's passing by, calling to you. Repent. I will take you back. I never left you. I love you. The Lord's beckoning to you through this sermon. He cares about your restoration, so be restored to your Savior. Confess that sin and do those things that make for holiness. Do those things that make for godliness. Purge out the worldly ways and the worldly works and the worldly words that got you to the place where you fell. If you're wondering, why do I fall so often? Why do I fall so easily? More than likely because your ways and your works and your words are so worldly that it's easy to fall into the world, isn't it? But when your ways and your works and your words are godly, saturated with Scripture, oh, it's so much easier to fight against sin. It's so much easier to see it for what it is. Purge out those worldly ways and works and words and return to the ways of Righteousness, go tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. Oh, the Lord, he loves his people and he wants to restore you. He wanted to restore Peter and Peter was restored. Praise God. And then he says this, there you will see him. There is a promise of something to happen in the future that is sure. You'll see him. You're gonna see him. And it's true for us too, Christian. You're going to see him. Either he's going to come back again, and you're going to see him that way, or you'll face him after your last breath. Three seconds after you're dead, you'll be standing before him in judgment. Yes, all your words and works will be examined. 
thank the Lord, those of us who are in Christ have the righteousness of Christ that will be viewed through all that and will be allowed to go into heaven, not because of any righteous deeds we've done, but because of the righteousness of Christ alone. That's all of our hope. That's all of my hope. Alistair Begg said, if you answer God's question on the day of judgment, why should I let you in? He said, if you answer it with a personal pronoun, me, I, anything, me or I, he said, you're not getting in. It's gonna, you have to answer it with him, because of him. He's the only reason why I'm getting in here, because of Christ. I bring nothing to my salvation except the sin that makes it necessary. And don't quote that because that was a, that's a quote of R.C. Sproul. That's not original from Cohen Ezel, okay? Some of you like to write down, ooh, this is good. Oh. R.C. Sproul said that, and it is good. There you will see him. Future promise from the angel, and we're gonna see Jesus as well if you're in Christ. Just as he told you. He ends with that. Look at that. It was like a Jesus word sandwich. Because he started off with, remember how he told you, and then he ends with, just as he told you. Why the, why the doubling? To put the emphasis on it. You're going to see him just as he told you. There's a refocus on why this is true. There's a, there's a refocus on why what the angel's saying to them is true. Because Jesus told you. Jesus told you. And then our text, when we composite it all together, we see that Matthew tells us that he actually ends his statement with, see, I have told you. I fulfilled what I was sent here to do. This messenger is ending by saying, I was faithful to give you the message I was told to give you. See, I've told you. I love that. I love how he ended with that. See, I've told you. He's basically saying, I fulfilled God's will for what I was sent to do. I love that. Because we know also that Jesus also fulfilled everything the Father gave him to do. Which is why we're here this morning, those of you who are in Christ. Your beautiful and perfectly obedient Savior accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. Let me say that again. Your beautiful and perfectly obedient Savior accomplished everything necessary for your salvation. And that's a really big deal. You know what that means? That means you don't have to try to accomplish it yourself. So stop trying to accomplish it yourself. If you're in here this morning and you're not saved yet, I can almost guarantee you you've got some sort of works-based thoughts Bouncing around in your head. You know, I just, I need to be here first. I need, I gotta, I gotta do this first. You know, if only I was better at this first. I just need to be more faithful first. If I was more holy first, then I'll commit to Jesus after that. Stop trying to please God, okay? You don't. <laughs> in and of yourself, you don't. Jesus pleases God because he perfectly kept God's law, perfectly. And your faith and trust has to be in him alone. It's not about you. It's about Jesus. 
And the sooner you get that, the happier you're going to be. Because you let yourself down pretty often. I know I do. I've never been disappointed in Jesus. Since I've become a Christian, I've never been disappointed in Jesus. I've been disappointed in Cohen quite a lot. And before I was saved, when I was disappointed, I always thought it was other people's fault. And now I look back and I'm like, no, it was your fault, dummy. Duh, why don't you see that? Because I was blind and deceived. The devil had me right where he wanted me. And I was headed for hell on a slippery slope. And Jesus said, I'll take that one. And I believed. Those of you who are here this morning who are sure that you don't yet know the Lord, you can't honestly say, you can't honestly point at a time in your life where Jesus Christ changed your life, really changed it. It's so refreshing when I meet people who are honest with me. I had an honest conversation about a month ago with someone, and I asked him that question. Can you point at a time in your life where you can honestly say to me, honestly, that Jesus changed my life at this point? He said, no, I can't. I love that. So refreshing to speak to honest people. They usually want to flatter me in some way because they know I'm a pastor and act some way that they're not uh, sickening. (laughs) He was honest. He said, no, I can't. And he let me share the gospel with him. I wish I could say that. Oh, and he got on his knees and he repented. He didn't. But seeds were sown. Listen, if that's you as well, you think you've got to perform in order to receive God's approval, you don't. You've got to believe in Christ in order to receive his approval because Jesus is the one who pleases him. Well done, my good and faithful servant, is what you will hear on the last day because of what God said to Jesus one day. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's why you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, because you're in Christ which is why we celebrate Easter so much, which is why I woke up happy. And you're like, don't you wake up happy every morning, Cohen? Because you're a pastor. And pastors are supposed to be eternally happy, or else you're not a good man. (laughs) I woke up so happy because of what this day represents. Jesus Christ paid the debt that I owe, and now his righteousness has been imputed into my account and my sinfulness was put into his account and he crushed it and he died and he rose again showing that the price is paid showing that the people whom he came to gather are going to come and showing that the father is perfectly pleased with that payment of the son and you can be in the family too and the Lord wants you to be sinner if you're not saved yet come This is your day. Believe where you're sitting right now. Believe. Saint, who's been in the faith for many years, celebrate with me today. We have a risen Savior. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for Jesus Christ and him crucified and risen. We After this song, we'll be partaking of the Lord's Supper. And you, Lord Jesus, told us to do this in remembrance of you until you come again. So we know that you're alive. 
and we're expecting you to come again. Just as the angel said to the women that they were going to see him, we also know we're going to see you. We love you and we pray these things in your name.